Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. This week on the podcast, we are going to unpack all the great ideas discussed at last week's The Future of Media and The Future of Gaming events that were held in London. That includes some of the big takeaways from interviews with Vivendi CEO Yannick Bollere and S4 Capital's Martin Sorrell, among many others. There was debate over agency-client relationships, consensus on the importance of measurement, and much speculation about the growth of retail commerce, gaming, and social video. Our Future 100 leaders also argued passionately for greater support for diverse employees as the industry struggles to retain top talent. We will look to discuss other more recent topics in the news as well, like the slew of dis and misinformation on social media platforms in the wake of Israel, uh, the Israel-Hamas war, and how Netflix is making moves into brick-and-mortar retail and live sports, uh, among many other topics. TikTok isn't even just on phones anymore, as Ella Sagar reported for us uh, just this week. And joining me, of course, to discuss is Ella and also the editor-in-chief, Omar Oaks. Hi to you both. And uh, yeah, Omar, uh, if you can't tell uh, listeners, uh, he is back home again ill. I'm sorry to hear that, and I hope you're doing okay, but you sound just good to us. People are going to start wondering why I'm ill all the time, and um, anyone who has young children will know it's their fault. Um, yeah, kids, nursery, picking up germs all over the place. So yeah, sorry, but I'm I'm with you. I'm with you virtually. <laughs> yeah, when that's all that matters. Um so I know we were all really busy running around at last week's event, but Omar, you must have been probably the busiest of all of us. You were hosting a number of interviews and panels with some of the biggest names uh, across Future of Media and also the Future of Gaming. Um, before we jump into any details, I'm curious what you thought top line main takeaways from the event. What would you say? You know, what can we expect from the Future of Media? Uh, what, it, what, it, what it could look like based on what was discussed at that event? It was really um, fascinating to see how when you do these conferences, this is our annual conference that we do um, in October each year, and you try and get a sense of what's keeping people up at night, whether they work in media sales, whether they work in advertising, they buy advertising, create advertising, whether they're working content. I th it's changed quite a lot from last year in which trust in media was a huge topic and one of the issues that people wanted us to champion in 2023. And it was much more, I thought, this this year's Future of Media last week was geared around more granular issues. Um, so the media agency client model um, was a big source of concern. And it wasn't just in the private session we had for media leaders where we discussed that, but also running through lots of topics in the conference, this this constant um, tension, if you like, of agencies being expected to do more for less, clients um, needing to justify themselves in terms of marketing, speaking the language of the CFO better. And also there was a bit of, um, you know, talk about trust as well, but trust means different things to different people, um, depending on who you talk to. Um, but there was one word that emerged um, that was quite interesting, and maybe we could talk a bit more about that. And that was the word impact um, emerged as quite clever word I thought in terms of um, people wanting to actually develop a more robust language or set of words for how 
media is justified going forward like more than just media being used to show how it can you know through advertising it can improve a, a company's sales or um, better communication but also how media um, drives culture which is still really important and sometimes we overlook if we get too focused on media sales and advertising um, but how do you actually measure that um, I think um, if we can get better at telling that story through perhaps harder numbers um, and a better language, um, that's going to be something that we're going to focus on for next year for sure. Mm, yeah, I thought the, the term impact was quite interesting because I thought it was a bit um, esoteric. It wasn't clear to me if they meant uh, we should be talking to you know the, the CFO and from the CMO communicating to the CFO about the impact of media better. Um, through using measurement and sort of rebranding measurement as well, actually, we're, we're showing you how important we are and here, here's how. Or if it was sort of about these broader cultural things to say, you know, media and advertising makes a big impact in ways outside of that are not necessarily immediately tangible to the business, but still provide value to the business. Um, and I, I think I, I got a little bit lost in that discussion. I'm curious, um, Ella as well, I mean, impact... Uh, was not just part of the discussion that was behind closed doors in the morning that uh, I reported on uh, this week, but but it started to become a big buzzword for the whole event. So I was curious what you thought mm. about that. I think sometimes it's interesting you say value because I think impact and value can be n not quite interchangeable, but they are definitely linked. And that links back to effectiveness as well. So there was this whole kind of thought of, are we just thinking about a campaign? Are we thinking about a publication or like, are we thinking about the consumer? Are we thinking at like what, where is that? Um, where are those kind of touch points that are kind of the most important things to us? And the, I think one thing that I was noticing was that the KPIs for different brands will be, and the impact of different brands will be different, how they measure those sorts of things. And that goes back to that whole, like measurement is always a really thorny issue that we can't seem to agree on that the sort of standards and those definitions that everyone is happy with on on agency side client and and on the media owners there's just because uh, and that fragmentation was also a buzzword as well that kind well, of kept is, on coming out it? and it always is yeah. yeah yeah and that's that's that that's the wider issue and maybe that's something that um hasn't really come out of our reporting so far i mean we're just kind of there were so many sessions you know at future media we had like what, 600 delegates in the end across the two days and well over 100 speakers and anyone can look at the agenda and see what we talked about. But I think the, the measurement piece, as Ella says, is really important because, okay, we can talk about how we measure impact better, right? But we can't even get our act together in this industry in terms of defining common standards for measuring online media audiences you know we don't have any joint on joint industry currencies for online media and why is that it's because that forces you to make choices about what we measure and what we shouldn't measure and it also forces media owners to come together and start you know saying that we're going to agree on this even if it doesn't you know some things might benefit um, another company more than us. Um, but how, how, do, how do we actually get media owners to do that? Um, we haven't managed to do it, frankly, so far in online media. Um, I think that's going to be um, a big talking point because advertisers are now demanding it. You know, Project Origin, um, ISBA in the UK, this, this really ambitious proposal to do create a whole platform for cross-media measurements. Yeah, okay. But how do we actually do that in practice? 
Um, these are, these are, this is going to be a big issue that is not going to be solved at one conference or even next year. But going forward, this is a big, big challenge for the media industry. I wasn't actually uh, able to go into the, the session in the morning uh, about data and measurement. And I was, did, did either of you get a chance to spend a lot of time in that room? I'm curious what the main takeaways were. Was it, was it this focus on the need for jigs? No? I think from what people have said about the data and measurement pieces, it was kind of those standards and, and the definitions and kind of were, and the, the value of measurement. From what the delegates told me afterwards, it was the kind of um, measurement should be a like pre-campaign, not mm. an afterthought sort of thing. Um, and But it does, I mean, it requires a lot of investment in terms of resources and things like that as well. So that there are lots of sides to it. Mm. Ella, I know you did a lot of work at the event uh, hosting discussions on the future of retail media and commerce as well. Um, I wasn't able to be in that room either. <laughs> we were all quite busy <laughs> running, running around. around. Yeah. Um, what did I miss? What What were the the main takeaways? Uh, what can make retail media grow further? And and I think at the beginning of the year we had a columnist that called uh, predicted that twenty twenty three would be the the year of retail media yes. and and has it been? Yes. I mean, it's it's a. Uh... I was talking to some other delegates and they were saying, oh, is this the year of retail media? Like however many years with the year of mobile, it just kind of doesn't, sometimes it, it sounds great. But um, I think one thing that came out is that retail media is kind of only, it's been going for a while, but the, it's it's going to keep on growing. Although that was kind of tempered in this very interesting panel that I chaired with um, Nicole Kibble from um, Criteo, who was like, not every retailer can be a successful retail media network because there's going to be lots of retailers kind of looking at, oh, I can make, there's a better margin on on media than there is on the kind of normal goods that I sell. That would be quite an interesting, uh, like extra revenue source. Um, but not every retailer can do media. You would need, and it's not just about like the data and, and things like that, but it's also about like the demand from other third party advertisers to advertise on on your network and so the example she gave was gap after about a year of having a media kind of offering um kind of pulled the plug on it and said and just kind of didn't pursue it any further which was a counterpoint to all of the other news that you get in retail media where um everyone seems to be piling in um so there is still going to be a lot of growth but there are lots of considerations um in terms of investment in terms of like demand for like your product and that kind of development it's not quite as simple as just being like turning it on overnight um so it might i think the one of the forecasts was that it will overtake tv by 2027 in terms of spend but that is again it, it would depend on if there's consolidation in the market if that or if there's lots of new players so there might be i think and you've got um, the biggest players like Walmart are benefiting the most. This is what Ian Whitaker was saying is that in retail media, it kind of reflects search that um, the biggest players benefit the most. Um, and they're, you know, the Walmarts and the Carrefours are sort of way, way ahead. And even in the US market is about a year, two years ahead. So mm-hmm. there's still, we've got a lot of catching up to do basically. There's <laughs> just so much data among the giants. I mean, they have just such a, a head start, don't they? Yeah. But even if you have the data, it's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. It has to be clean data to be able to use and it can be quite expensive to set up these data clean rooms not just in terms of um like finance but also in terms of carbon as well it just takes it it's a lot to 
kind of, of resources. And in terms of the teams to put behind it, that's what Nicole was saying, is the kind of manpower, for lack of a better word, that you need to be able to kind of staff that media network is something that I hadn't necessarily thought of before. Mm. So quite a few interesting elements. Yeah, standards, definitions also came up again. And um, and then also the kind of idea of retail media as a full funnel or um, and the conversations in multiple panels were just like, we should just get rid of the idea of the funnel entirely. <laughs> well, it it doesn't exist. <laughs> it seems like everyone wants to be full funnel. Yeah. Uh, the amount of companies that I've, uh, media owners especially, that I've seen, heard, uh, mm-hmm. being like, oh, this is the, this is the full funnel mm-hmm. solution. I feel like it almost doesn't, <laughs> that terminology almost doesn't mean anything anymore. Omar, mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about that. Mm-hmm. Surely that's the right idea though, isn't it? To want to be full funnel because if you're Tesco, um, which bought Dunhumby, um, to you know, it created the Tesco Club Card, and in theory, gets all this amazing data about what's what its shoppers are doing, and it should be able to tell um, all of these brands. Well, our shoppers do this, and this is the best way to reach them. And you know, they look across the pond, and you, you mentioned Walmart; it's got its own TV station, and it's kind of doing all these amazing. It's created all this amazing inventory for brands to reach their customers. But that doesn't solve the fundamental problem that a Tesco has of how do I get more people to come to Tesco and how do I get people to shop more at Tesco? Because that's still what's moving the needle for these companies. And they're still operating in a very competitive environment at very thin margins. If it's just um, selling some online inventory um, and you're getting new revenue that you wouldn't have gotten elsewhere, then this just becomes an extreme, it becomes a no-brainer essentially, but it's not actually moving the dial strategically for a lot of these big retailers. So I would suggest that, yeah, they do have to become full funnel if if what you say by full funnel means that this has to be integrated into their wider marketing operations because it doesn't change the need for good media planning. It doesn't need the cha- it doesn't change the need for making smart decisions about where and how you buy your media. Um, so I'm I'm not I'm not saying that it's a lot of hot air, but I think as long as retail media is integrated properly into a wider business marketing strategy, then it can be very effective. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think um, uh, this is something that came up with um, David Fieldhouse, who's the Group M New, uh, UK's head of commerce, new head of commerce. So he was saying that around the data side, there is a lot of hot air about like how great this data and like what you can do with it. I mean, but there is obviously there is a lot, it is important, but he says that, that, you know, you do get a lot of hot air about like how important this is for most brands. Um, and Steve Ricketts was saying, who from Publicist Media in his presentation on the next five years of commerce media, he was saying, this is an, like a really good opportunity for brands and for retailers, but retailers are always first and foremost going to be retailers and media owners second. And that's kind of to your point, Omar, it is a kind of a no brainer, but I think again, they've got to focus on their core business. Mm. Mm. I'm sure we could go uh, back and forth about retail media for, we should, I mean, we'll have more retail media podcasts, but I do want to move us along because we haven't touched on the future of gaming yet, uh, which was its own event. Um, I held two fireside chats there, one with gaming journalist Shay Thompson, as well uh, as one with Rob Gay, the CEO of Venetus, which is a leading gaming ad tech company. Um, 
I thought that the takeaways from their candor were were quite enlightening. Um, I'll, I'll I'll get to that in a second, but I'm curious. You um, had the best two sessions, Jack. I thought. Oh, well, not <laughs> not, not just because you. you hosted them. Uh, you lucked <laughs> out. You had some really good interviewees. I can't, I can't wait to get um, the content out there for everyone to watch. But yeah, they were really good. What what, what did you think of? The, I mean, I was up on stage, uh, so there were a million thoughts racing through my head at the time. I was curious as a as a listener. I mean, what were some of the big takeaways from those two, but also from from the rest of the event? Um, yeah, so just in your session, so um, you started off the event by interviewing um, this gaming journalist, Shay Thompson. Um, and it was fascinating just to get that that sort of dispassionate perspective on how important gaming is within the advertising realm and as part of culture. And, you know, for, for, for example, you asked about the metaverse which generally people weren't very keen to talk about, which was interesting in itself. Um, <laughs> um, but she, she, you know, she, she was very sniffy, shall we say, about um, the metaverse, um, which I actually kind of, I won't get into it, but um, I have my own thoughts. I'm actually more positive about the metaverse, but maybe in a different way to most people. Um, but generally just... You know, it's what we've heard this before in terms of brands needing to understand the culture behind gamers, that you can't just pigeonhole one gamer as the same as the other, where, you know, not just kind of young men in their basement playing, I was going to say playing Tekken, but would anyone even know what Tekken is nowadays? Yeah, the, the, yeah, some. Yeah, so I'm showing my age. But, you know, um, gaming is so different. And because of the internet and smartphones, you know, a lot of people are playing games on the tube and even you know, Duolingo. You know, Duolingo is a game and it opens up a wider conversation about not just what is a game, but what are online services that have become gamified. You could even argue that social media has become gamified to the extent that are we all gamers because we're on social media? We're all throwing up this content and kind of, you know, wondering, is it going to go viral? Um, there's a there's a more f- kind of philosophical approach to gaming and its intersection with media, which kind of came out in the conference as well, which is really interesting. So that was fascinating. And then, yeah, you, you spoke to um, this chap, Rob Gay, who runs this um, gaming advertising um, agency, Venatus. Venatus? They are pronounced Venatus. And um, he was, as you say, he was quite candid. And he, um, I hope I'm not misquoting him, but, you know, he was essentially um, saying that a lot of the, the problem comes down to agencies and the trading relationships within the media ecosystem, which is why, um, frankly, the brands aren't involved in gaming as maybe they could be. You know, he said that, you know, the clients I speak to, they get it, but it's the agencies um, that are holding us back. Now, on the one hand, he would say that, wouldn't he? But on the other, I do think it's true. and And it draws a line to a lot of what we heard at Future of Media as well, where, you know, we can all talk from an abstract point of view in terms of the pros of cons of you know retail media and you know what we do on tv as it becomes more connected tv and how's the best way in theory that you should advertise or use media but actually a lot of what the guides these decisions are the trading relationships the hardcore relationships between buy side and sell side. And frankly, those just aren't there in gaming. They just aren't there. If you're um, a big brand advertiser and you want to advertise in Grand Theft Auto because that's what all the cool kids are playing, you know, who do you call up 
and who do you and who, you know what's the inventory and how much does it cost you know it's not obvious and that let alone all the issues about getting it wrong and you know um being inauthentic um so yeah fascinating discussions yeah i think i think there was a there's a lot that's that's in uh it's being built right now basically and i think one thing that i took away from my conversation with rob uh as well was that you do have a lot of i mean advertisers tend to be risk averse you mentioned just at the end there um all of the mistakes that have been made in the past that maybe uh certain brands have been like oh well we tried gaming once it didn't work out for us it was actually very poorly received etc and we don't want to come back or at least not for some time um and rob basically said look i'd rather take you know ten thousand pounds from you now than uh two hundred thousand if it means that i can prove to you that this is going to work for your business and we can then build from there um and i thought that seemed to be like one of the big takeaways from gaming uh, the, the whole event was basically look if you're new to this then just you don't have to jump in and make some big thing mm. in Roblox or Fortnite or, you know, invest a ton of money in something that might not work out that well. You can start pretty small by just speaking to the gaming community in a lot of different ways because it's massive and yeah. different games have their own different sub communities and everything. So there's lots of opportunity to reach people. It's just about, you know, t testing and learning and, and maybe starting small. It doesn't have to be like a really fancy bespoke kind of um, activation. Mm. Um, in the biggest game and it, it kind of reminded me of the conversations you have around podcasts where brands kind of sometimes want to go for the biggest podcast name because it's what they've heard of and because they think it'd be really like a, a good like, and, but they don't necessarily think about the audience or like the uh they don't they don't quite get it right they don't get the tone of voice right or it doesn't quite work um and I sat in on a workshop um, with um, this agency Kairos and Heinz and they were talking about how Heinz had done three different kind of campaigns over a couple of years like and they kind of started small and kind of got bigger in, in and gaming in gaming mm. and they were saying well the biggest mistake that brands make with gaming is they just think about what is the game and who is my audience and they don't think about why people are gaming so there's many reasons why there might be like casual gamers or community gamers and those sorts of differences is more important than the what the gate the actual game is and like who the age demographic and that that sort of thing which i thought was a really interesting perspective and that kind of goes back to that nub of media planning of like that kind of mindset that people are in when they're consuming that content and exposed to that ad is really important um and i mean because i'm coming at it from a kind of audio sort of side of things and that they talk a lot about engagement and obviously when you're listening to a lot of audio it's through headphones and it's very intimate and that whereas with gaming i think the word instead of intimate is authentic mm. that kept on being spoken about which was quite which is interesting because every industry's got their own every sector's got their own kind of selling points and i think that the gaming side of it it, it can be scaled but it can also be that like you have to kind of think about it quite carefully yeah i think the intimacy um i think intimacy is a relevant word though isn't it because um it, it reminds me of um you know advertising on social as well where um when you're in that one-to-one -one environment with your phone um for for me anyway um it it matters quite a lot that you know someone might be serving me a personalized ad or that the ad is completely out of context with the activity that i'm doing um i was reminded of you know because i'm such a nerd i'm so sorry um i i am 
I've been, I can touch type, but um, I noticed that I'm kind of like making the same mistakes and I'm really bad with one of my pinky fingers. So I downloaded on my iPad um, uh, a touch type training app thing and it's free. So it's ad supported, right? Now this, this, pro, this, pro, this program is really good. I can recommend it. Call me afterwards um, if you want to do it yourself. But um, it kind of come up with these kind of banner ads and these kind of interstitial ads and they're just crap. They're just like programmatically um, served stuff. And, you know, because it's Apple, you know, the, the advertisers, you know, know very little about who I am. And it's completely out of context to the activity which I'm doing, which is, you know, learning to type. And suddenly I'm being served ads for, you know, this kind of, you know, do I want to invest in crypto bullshit, you know? And it's like, um, so I'm technically a gamer doing that even though I'm trying to kind of upskill myself and just the advertising that I'm being served is just completely irrelevant and inauthentic. And yeah, because I'm in an intimate environment, I'm going to, the negative impact of that is a lot worse than if I'm kind of sitting back watching TV with the missus and, you know, crap ad comes on. Well, I just kind of like dismiss it and it's not a big deal. You know, the stakes are a lot higher, but I think that 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 sounds paradoxical with everything we've just been talking about in terms of, oh, you know, just give us 10 grand and we'll see Departo in the water. But actually, you, you still need to use that 10 grand really carefully, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's, uh, mm. I don't think that's what they, they weren't saying, oh, we're just going to, you know, fling around 10 grand. And, mm. and I'm sure they, they yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. still the experts at, at gaming, but I, I totally uh, agree with you. Um, you know, maybe someone should be calling up Logitech and telling them about this uh, touch type game or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, seems like an opportunity. Um, you know, outside of future of media, future of gaming, there was a lot of stuff that was going on. Uh, we weren't obviously able to cover all of it, um, but it'd be really good to, to talk about it now. Um, uh, perhaps the biggest global story that that happened uh in the past week week and a half has been the outbreak of of war in gaza between israel and hamas now i don't want to get into the weeds of the conflict here uh we're a commercial media trade publication not an international news outfit um but media has had a major role to play in the conflict already and i wanted to get your analysis on what's occurred both at the bbc and also on social media in response to this war um, firstly, the, the BBC has come under uh, intense criticism for refusing to refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization. Ray Snoddy just wrote a piece for us where he said he felt that the BBC's impartiality rules should allow the BBC to do so and that they're maybe uh, uh, unnecessarily restraining themselves in, in some of their dialogue. And um, I'm curious, Omar, first, what you make of the debacle at the BBC, but then the response that's also been, in, I mean, basically all the editorial pages of all of the major news outlets in the UK. Um, impartiality to me seems like a pretty inexact science and this i'm speaking as an american to be fair and we don't have quite the same impartiality rules um but but how do arguments on either side hold up for you let's get real how impartial can anybody be when something so horrific like that happens um when hundreds of people are murdered including children how how can anyone be impartial um it doesn't make sense on a human level and, you know, I completely appreciate what you said at the, at the start of that just now where, you know, we, we're not going to solve Israel, Palestine, um, and it's not in our wheelhouse as it were, but it's, it's, it's unavoidable as a topic. Um, at the start of um, my interview with Sir Martin Sorrell, 
last week um you know he he began by referencing you know we shouldn't lose sight of even though we're talking about important issues today it it pales in, in to insignificance when you think about some of these these tragic unspeakable things that happen around the world unfortunately on too regular a basis um so i'm i, I mentioned that not just to put things into context but also because again how can you be impartial um I thought what what's interesting, like the BBC has come under a lot of um criticism and you know, Raymond Snoddy references it in his media leader column this morning, where they um seem they refrain from using the word terrorism being associated with Hamas. Um now there were, he he references um John Simpson um who um he explains that the BBC avoids the T word because it doesn't want to be seen to be taken sides. Um, And it reminded me of how, you know, it used to be perfectly legitimate to call people like Nelson Mandela a terrorist, Jerry Adams a terrorist, um, before they became, you know, political leaders and were involved in actual dialogue. Um, You know, the, the definition of what a terrorist versus a freedom fighter does change over time. It is a politically loaded term. So I do actually have some sympathy if you're actually trying to be a quote-unquote impartial international news organisation. But on the other hand, again, related to the point about how can you be impartial about terrorism, it's just a fact that if you are a group, an organised group, who are murdering and committing violence against people for political aims with a wider aim to inspire terror, fear, anger, then by definition, you are a terrorist organisation. And I'm a bit confused as to why that's in conflict with any impartiality regime. Mm -hmm. I think that was Ray's point as well. I don't know if you had any thoughts, Ella. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there was a point in there, um, in the column about how it has been deemed, uh, Hamas has been deemed a terrorist organisation by um the House of Lords, correct me if I'm wrong. So there, there, but it is again, it's this idea that the BBC doesn't want to be seen to be passing a judgment on or taking sides, as they say. Um, but John Sopel, an ex BBC journalist now at the news agents, he also tweeted, which Ray mentioned, that he's like, well, it is, as you say, Omar, it is like, it is a fact, like, and, and it seems to be sanitizing mm. the, the news by calling it the militants or, um, those sorts of words and um but yeah it's it there's so many different sides to this this that no no one quite knows like you know what to but I, again i i'm kind of on omar's side here that i just think that it is it does seem to be a fact mm, yeah you know? i think i think news organizations have a responsibility to call a spade a spade mm. i mean that's literally what they're meant to inform if it's factual if something's factually true then it's factually true uh, omar you were you were gonna say that well, I was, I was actually um, interested to know what you think, Jack, because you lead on our um, our publishing coverage, and I'm almost interested in the question itself over why it actually matters what the BBC, wh- wh- whether the BBC uses this word or not, because on the one hand. I'm thinking, well, does it actually change the quality of the BBC's coverage? Is it, is it change, you know, is it still, does it change the speed or the accuracy of what the BBC is reporting about, you know, this, this unspeakable 
I hate to use the word tragedy because it sounds trite, but that's what it is. Um, does it does it change any of that? Are people what what I'm getting at is I wonder what you think about this, Jack. Are people wanting the BBC to actually take sides because they actually want they feel like it's a proxy for some sort of patriotism? I'm like I understand the kind of the impartiality thing and it kind of ties you up in knots but why do people care so much that the bbc is using this t-word or not well i uh part of it is that this is probably the most uh, um, uh controversial topic uh in probably global politics you know israel palestine's always been a bit of a, a firestorm and so it attracts certain people that have very strong opinions especially on things that they they may not n- be that informed of um, and i think we've seen a lot of that on social media recently and i'll, I'll ask about that in a few minutes but um i think the importance of getting the terminology right is i mean that that's what we do as journalists and that's what the bbc should be doing and and to be fair to the bbc they've done some amazing reporting out there and and all of the war correspondents should be you know lauded for the work that they do um especially if they're on the ground there um but the words that you use matter and i think that's why people get really so passionate about it um, because if you call someone a militant, okay, maybe you're trying not to take sides, um, but that just might not be accurate. So it, it, be, it comes back to the sort of trust in news issue of when does imp- trying to be impartial actually lead you down to being untrustworthy? I think in the U.S. we've struggled with this a lot. Um, we don't have the same types of impartiality rules, but the same... Uh, pull and push has been going on with all of our major news outlets, especially around the, you know, the coverage of someone like Donald Trump or these really far right Republicans, where um, a lot of news outlets, uh, thankfully, call a lot of them insurrectionists if they were involved in the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, because that's what it was. But you, you know, if the BBC was covering that event, uh, maybe if that happened in the UK, would they call it an insurrection or, I mean, or a protest or a protest or, or, or or, or an act of terror or an act of terror. So it gets at these sort of um, sometimes it's hard to say, but sometimes, sometimes the truth it's not that it's slanted, but that there's there's actually an there's an accurate side, I suppose, especially when you're being met with so much misinformation and disinformation from from another side, which we've seen in a lot of far right uh, uh, groups. And in this case of Israel, uh, uh, Hamas, actually a lot of uh, far left groups as well, um, sh- sharing lots of misinformation around this conflict. Um, and that actually gets at something that I wanted to ask about. Um, you know, I, all three of us have deleted our Twitter accounts, so we're not on that platform probably much at all anymore. Um, I only check it if someone sends me a link, and I always begrudgingly uh, uh, click on it because I know I'm, I'm adding to whatever monthly active user that they're using to, to sell ads, That although they're not selling that many ads anymore. Mm-hmm. Anyway... I was curious, um, you know, social media is dealing with all of this disinformation, misinformation. In my opinion, it's been about as bad as I've ever seen it. Um, and that includes on places like TikTok, Facebook, uh, threads, which I'm on increasingly. I've seen disinformation there. Instagram's been really bad. Um, I'm curious, have you seen lots of false stories or narratives spreading around on social media? And what should we make of that? Because increasingly I've noticed and this this happened in ukraine as well that um the information war is becoming really significant and in western countries especially that may not be directly involved in the conflict uh, at hand 
Um, Ella, why don't you start? So I'm not on social media a huge amount, I must admit, but I was um, targeted with quite a, a, like a disturbing ad from the Israeli foreign ministry about the conflict. And it was kind of um, on a YouTube video and it was, and it was the pre-roll and it was like, it seemed like a kid's kind of show. And it was like, oh, um, this is not a kid's show and blah, blah. And then it kind of went into our children are being murdered. And or it was really quite like when, when I'd gone on to watch like a, a cooking video or something, it was very uh, jarring. And in terms, so there's there's that, which I've been seeing there's, a bit more state about. There's actors that are kind actually of, advertising. Yeah, that are kind of advertising around that kind of thing. And and I again, I do think you did see that with Ukraine a little bit in terms of like the um what like donate money to this this charity for the for the Ukraine uh like to help with the Ukraine war and things like that. But I think that was the most jarring uh, kind of ad that I'd seen in quite a while. But I do think in terms of the misinformation, I think that some of it, the worst stuff coming from Elon Musk himself that I've seen of being like follow these accounts for the 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 true um, uh, kind of facts about what's happening. And they're not, then those accounts are completely bogus. Mm. So I think there's, and it's that's that I find the most dangerous when some, a figure that some people will trust uh, above others saying, this is where you get your real information. And that's where I think social media is really, can be really dangerous because you'll follow someone. And if they say, oh, this is where you get the real information, then you just kind of, you get down that, uh, like wormhole. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Omar, I know that you're, you're trying to get off social media probably more than maybe you ever have done. I don't, I don't know if you have any perspective on anything that you've seen. I mean, let's not forget that we live in a time where the U S surgeon general is quite comfortably publicly saying, publicly comparing social media to smoking. Um, it's, you know, I, I'm an, I'm an ex-smoker and I enjoyed smoking quite a lot actually when I used to do it. Um, but I quit many years ago because I recognized that it's not good for me. Um, and I think that distinction is quite apt actually, because I was on Twitter for many years and I got some value. I met some people I wouldn't have met otherwise, got some stories I wouldn't have got otherwise, had some fun I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and the same goes for LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, but you have to make a judgment about how online media has the potential to sprout up all over the place and demand so much more of our attention than offline media ever could, that we have to take care with how we use that attention. And so, okay, so in the short term, we've all come off Twitter. And frankly, it's because of Elon Musk and what he's done to that platform, as Ella has rightly referenced. But there's, but it's also started this wider conversation that we've had if people follow what the, the, the content that we've been putting out in recent weeks and months, but this wider conversation about attention and how important it is. And the quality of media that people are consuming nowadays. And you have to form a judgment over, okay, there are some use cases for social media, but is it actually worth your time? Is it actually worth your time when we think about misinformation and the poor quality user experience and the poor quality of advertising? Is it actually worth your time to be on there? 
Um, and I've come to the judgment that frankly it's not. And the only social media account I use is LinkedIn because I'm a B2B journalist, you guys are B2B journalists and our contacts and the people that we want to reach are on there. And you know what sets LinkedIn apart from other social media? User verification. There are no bots on LinkedIn. Um, there may be a problem with kind of, you know, AI kind of accounts as a different story. But in general, um, the people, people are who they say they are. So you get high quality of conversation such that it is. Um, so that the it's the use of bots is what creates misinformation it's the poor it's it's the attention economy in dis incentives that creates the misinformation um and I'm f and i think if you want to have a better quality media industry um frankly you should have no part of it and you know i i don't say that lightly it's not i don't you know i i i take that really seriously actually you know saying that you know this industry should discount certain media owners i don't like doing that but this is is i've thought about this for a long time and it's not just about you know the comparison with smoking you think about the mental health impact it has on our children in particular and as someone with two young children you know if anyone wants to listen to me not listen to me and my views about media that's fine but if people do want to listen then i'm going to call it as I see it, and I don't think people, I don't think it's worth people's time to be using these social media platforms any more than they have to, than they have to professionally. Don't go scrolling on it. Don't inf use it to inform yourself. Entertain and inform yourself using quality media. If I could just add, I also think that the uh, uh, social media ecosystem, especially during like times of war, uh, has incentivized a too high of speed uh, expectation to receive news that is particularly bad. I think that leads to a lot of misinformation or disinformation because it could start from a bot or, or, or could start from a bad actor. But really what it is, is people think that they're entitled to news immediately right after it happens. We saw that yesterday with the uh, hospital that exploded, uh, uh, which is horrific in, in Gaza. Um, and immediately, you know, you have people jumping on saying, oh, well, Israel did it. And then Israel a few hours later says that Hamas did it. But there's already so much bad like dialogue that's happened just in that time period because people are not patient enough to, to wait and see and mm. hope for what evidence. And, and frankly, we still probably don't know because we need a third party to check who's responsible for that uh, uh, attack or or if it was attack or it was mm, just a mistake. It was an accident, yeah. Right, so there's too many unknowns. Uh, and look how it, look how it frankly deranges us as well. Look how it's, maybe he was already deranged, we just didn't know it, but look how it's deranged Elon Musk. Um, so when something like Israel-Palestine happens, everyone has to have a view. And, you know, um, BBC journalists suspended, the cartoonists from The Guardian suspended because they can't, they can't just help themselves putting out a view like they're in the pub um, talking about it on social media. Um, it's... Yeah, it's it's just it's just deranged our culture into thinking that everyone needs a hot take on the big thing that's happening right now, and it's like people just need to actually take a moment just to think about an issue, and maybe maybe you have something to say, and maybe you don't. Not everyone needs to say something all the time um, about every hot button issue. Yeah, part of that was also I think uh, a response that there's a lot of posting on social media to say, well, where are where why aren't you speaking up on this? You like you should be passionate about. It. I think that was a big thing, especially post George Floyd, of like we need allies to come and be public uh, in their allyship, and uh, perhaps there's a bit of a backlash to that because frankly, too many people do not need to be 
coming out with opinions on something that especially they if they don't know uh, a great deal of, of expertise about the topic um that's although that's my my personal opinion allyship's also a good thing um so i want to end on on lighter news and i'm going to keep it really short with you guys because i want to get through a bunch of other stories that that have cropped up but i haven't brought a gong um i might need to like <laughs> punch the bell. microphone or ring it yeah bring something um so keep it really uh, uh brief but i did want to run through a quick bit of topics uh so number one uh netflix has expanded both into retail stores and live sports that's on top of gaming so there's lots of things coming out of netflix omar can they pull off these types of expansions especially amid an increasingly competitive streaming market uh 60 seconds please Go. Yeah, sixty seconds. Okay. Um, well, I I think I think it's really interesting. Um, I was immediately um, you know, I um, it's not completely new. They've done activations, you know, in in London, in Westfield, for example. I've seen them do things around Stranger Things, and um, the name escapes me. But there was a Dave Bautista movie a couple of years ago, and they kind of they did this thing where it's like an in- interactive experience you could go into. Um, I you know when you look at an Apple store. As a point of comparison, it's not just the fact that you can buy an iPhone there or whatever, but it's actually a marketing play as well, isn't it? Because you walk past this kind of really glitzy Apple store and kind of it's always busy and there's always stuff happening. It kind of gives you impression of the brands being not just premium, but there. It's part of culture. And, you know, Netflix, frankly, it ain't going very well in terms of selling ads. That much is clear. We've talked about that already on the podcast. So what are they going to have to do over the next year, two years? They're going to have to raise prices. How are you going to raise prices? You need to be marketing. This is a form of marketing, but also you need to convince people that you're worth paying more for. So you have to be premium. And oh my God, you're looking at your watch. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good point though. Uh, um, you know, there's there's value in in-person experiences, not just for selling things, but also for, for marketing your, your own IP. Mm. Um, Ella, you reported this week that TikTok isn't just on phones anymore. Mm-hmm. It's moving into cinemas and out of home. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me what the play is here again in, in a uh, minute? In a minute. <laughs> oh, I think it's interesting. They're going, they're calling it the out of phone solution. So they're going to the bigger screens. So that's digital out of home screens, billboards, and also cinema screens. Uh, and it's a global partnership. They don't have any partnerships in EMEA just yet, but I do think, uh, for brands and for its content creators, it is a bigger canvas and it gives it a, a different uh, kind of, I don't want to, I don't know how to say this um, in terms of it's a, a new audience. They're trying to tap into new audiences that might not be necessarily TikTok users. And so I think that's quite clever. And I think also it gives the new audiences to the, like the brands and the um, creators and probably means that they can like, you know, uh, a different different ad formats and all that sort of revenue stuff as well. Mm, mm. Have I, have I, no, no, you, you're, you're, you're right on time. That was, that was a good answer. Uh, uh, you do have sound effects. You've got this big console in front of you, Jack. Listeners can't see it, but do you do you not have a gong preset? What presets do you have? I've got uh, I've got some chimes. I've got crickets. Uh, let me. Yeah, do, do crickets. You want me to crickets. do crickets? <laughs> yeah. Can you do that now? Yeah. yeah that, there you go. You can't, uh, can you, you can't hear that. Can do a trombone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah play, I mean, play, that, play, 
Play the yeah, trombone. Yeah, play crickets if, we, if we're too long. All right, I'll, long. I'll, I'll do the trombone if you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, two, uh, two, two more quick ones here. Um, WPP is merging, uh, merging, excuse me, Wonderman Thompson and WMYL and R, I believe. Did I get all of those? Uh, <laughs> it's like, how on earth? You can't so, even say it. I can't. No. You can't even say it. <laughs> Well, look, it doesn't matter anymore Is because it it's, it's becoming it's becoming VML. Um, what does it? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> what, is, what does it? What does it mean for 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 the agency market? Omar, why don't, why don't you have a go at that? Yeah, um, I'm I'm glad you asked me because I remember um, when they merged um, VML and YNR. Um, I was at Campaign Magazine and I wrote this kind of not just one um, story but loads of stories about it. Um, but you know what's interesting is um they've they've so they've merged VML YNR ad agency with um <laughs> sorry I'm still laughing at the pronunciation um so so they've they've merged that with Wonderman Thompson which is already a merger of Wonderman and J Walter Thompson and now the whole thing is being called VML and even though I've written a lot about this over the years, I still can't tell you what VML stands for. I remember the V stands for Valentine, but I've, I'm so sorry to the found, these agency founders. I've forgotten the other two. Um, but it's interesting because my instant reaction, I hate to say, was who cares? Uh, um, no, seriously, but who actually cares about these agency brands anymore? Like, you know, so we had Mark Reed at our... Um, um, our Media Leaders Awards earlier this year, the CEO of WPP, um, talking about the legacy of Jeremy Bullmore, this kind of um, grandfather, veteran, um, godfather of um, J. Walter Thompson. Um, and then within a matter of months, he's completely killed the J. Walter Thompson brand, which is already on its last legs with Wonderman Thompson. Um, these agency brands clearly do not matter anymore. These are just big holding companies, WPP, Publicis, Omnicom. Um, so Martin Sorrell mentioned Hearts and Science. Do you remember Hearts and Science being this this um, Omnicom Media Group network um, agency that was created as a conflict shop, you know, when they won? Yeah, anyway, um, it's, it's, it's a stunning kind of example where they kind of, they merged Essence and Mediacom last year. The year before that, they merged... I can't, you know, they, you know, they, this is what they do. This is what holding companies do. The agency brands don't matter. Mm. Well, you went way over, so I'm <laughs> going to give you a... Sorry, uh, sorry, <laughs> just yeah, cut me out in the editing. <laughs> All right, last question, though. Um, uh, Omar, you wrote about this actually uh, uh, last week. The Guardian's creating an advertising council that will allow uh, members of the editorial staff to be more involved in sales discussions. Um, does that fly in the face of church versus state when it comes to keeping editorial and sales separate when, when what's changed now to start that um omar uh, I'll, I'll give this to you as long as you can keep it under a minute <laughs> <laughs> um i don't think it needs to i mean um you know um i as editor of our publication i'm perfectly happy to have conversations with people who want to sponsor our events sponsor our publications sponsor our podcast maybe um i don't feel like i'm giving away our audience by having those sorts of discussions but you know just to be very clear um and i'm sure the you know guardians ad sales team would say the same it doesn't change um, the treatment of any of those sponsors if we were to write about you or talk about you. Clearly anyone li listening to this podcast should yeah, should be a testament to that. Um, so I don't think it needs to. I think what's interesting is kind of like bringing in kind of senior journalists to kind of have direct discussions with ad agencies. 
and whether there are, you know, how they navigate rules about like, well, would you get a business journalist? You know, if the ad agency tells you, oh, well, we, we, you know, we're really concerned about X, Y, and Z, would that filter its way into a story in The Guardian? And if not, why not? Um, I think I think there are kind of issues on the periphery which might be quite interesting. But in general, I think it's a good thing. It makes sense. We should have a more sophisticated, grown-up conversation between journalists and their sponsors so that they can have a better deal for everyone. Well, I, I, I'll give you an applause for that one. Mm. It, was, it was briefer than the previous response. So <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> that's enough of that. I'm going to have a lot of fun with uh, the sound effects going forward, uh, yeah. believe me. Um, but we will have to leave it there. Um, thanks so much, Ella Omar, for uh, joining me. Thank you for listening. Lots of uh, really big uh, and difficult topics on the episode today, so hopefully you enjoyed. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time. <laughs>